Turn to the end of Galatians. We get a pulpit where I can keep the cup of water. Uh, I don't even know what I'll do with myself then. This is the word of the Lord, Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, into Christ, excuse me, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray together. Father, it is with humility that we come before your word. We think of Psalm 29 and all of the mighty things your word can do. Shatters the cedars of Lebanon, it strips a forest bare. You speak and the seasons change and the leaves fall. Your word is mighty. And we are not. And so we ask that you would help us as we come to this passage. Help us to be properly offended by the right parts. Help us to be properly astonished at Christ. Help us to have the proper and righteous holy love that flows from the gospel. Offend our sensibilities and habits that are unholy. Shape us into your image even more so through the preaching of your word. May your word go forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to talk about slavery today. I'm a little scared. Some passages of Scripture are easy to just come kind of traipsing into and we can go running into them and enjoy them and they're easy and they're comforting like a warm blanket and we can dive into the promises of God and it is delightful. This is not one of those passages. 
There are some passages that in order for us to understand them correctly, we have to wrestle with the ugly truths behind them. Now, we've read this passage before. Many of us have several of these verses memorized, and we have interacted with it so much on that kind of surface level. We know that's easy to do, to read a passage and to get a surface reading, a surface meaning, but to never wrestle with it. To never wrestle with the Lord and cling to Him until He releases His promises to grasp a hold of His truth. And in order to do that in Galatians 3, we have to talk about slavery. But not just slavery. We have to talk about slavery, one, really as the reality of existence. And I recognize that in the South, this is both um, gutsy and probably a touch foolish. But we have to address the emotional realities of what life is like for people to grow up perceiving that they are property. Because Galatians chapter 3 is written within that context. It's written within a context which Paul is writing where there were more slaves than there were not slaves. In fact, actually, I think at the height of the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered freed men or citizens three to one. Crazy high. To think that your average human growing up in the Roman Empire grew up with an understanding that they were the physical property of another person. And if they had the chance to even have children, to know that their children would be the physical property of another person. And just parents, just just emotionally for a second, pause and consider that moment. Consider the moment that that little one came out and you thought, wow, that's kind of gross, but then that's adorable after they're cleaned up. And to think that little thing is amazing and it is the legal property of another. What would that do to your soul? To know that the child that had grown inside you for nine months, that bears your DNA, that is the object of so much of your love and affection belongs to someone else, just like their couch or their cows or their house. What does that do to your psyche? I can tell you right now, having two children, I probably would not like the people who owned my kids. It doesn't matter how good of care they took of them. It's not my care. I'm going to be angry. And not just a little angry. I'm going to be angry, and I'm going to be angry all the time. That's just the reality of my world. 
You see, this is the reality of the DNA of Galatians chapter 3. This is Rome. This is Greece. This is the ancient Near East. And it's compounded by something even worse. You have this deep-seated anger and hatred over this human slavery. This chattel property, man-stealing, man-selling With it, coupled hand in hand, you have deep-seated hatred between Jew and Gentile. And the Jews, again, you remember the Pharisees, they'd taken the law of God and taken law... God's law is good. I mean, it's really good. And they had misapplied it to turn it into something quite heinous and evil. And one of the ways they had misapplied that was to then go and say, not only are uh, Gentiles kind of these unclean things, they're hateful things. And we hate them and they hate us. And their relationship was, to put it delicately, a bit fractured. Again, think of very much Deep South and segregation. Thankfully, I I don't know this. This is not in my DNA, but I've seen the pictures. The hateful, hateful reality of water fountains for different different skin tones, different seats, different things. And that's what the Jews and the Gentiles, that was the reality of their daily existence. Different Always. They are unclean. We are clean. The two shall never mix. And the one time that they did, they were called Samaritans, and we hate them more than anything else. I mean, we hate Gentiles, but we really hate the Samaritans. This is the culture that the early church comes into. And you notice a word I've used with great regularity through this was just hatred. And that's because this is what it breeds. All of this hateful, hateful animosity is the result of not treating people correctly. Not treating them in the image of God. Not treating them uh, with the proper respect that all men and women, boys and girls deserve. And it's in that context of hate and anger and wrath and shame that Galatians 3 is delivered. And it's going to take up these themes. It's going to take them up in some obvious parts and some that your translation intentionally makes less obvious, honestly. Your English translation, no matter which one you're in, softens the blow in this section. We're going to look at three principles. I like threes. We could look at more. It'd be a longer sermon. First is to see the law is designed to point us to Jesus. The law is designed to point us to Jesus. This is 23 and 24. Paul in this whole book has really been working through what is the relationship of the law to the gospel? What is the relationship of what I do to how I am forgiven and who I am? What's the relationship of my behavior and my forgiveness? 
And he's been painting very graphic picture for them to say that your actions cannot save you because your actions cannot be good enough. Here he's going to heighten that language and take up very kind of graphic pictures, pictures that many of us probably wouldn't be comfortable with if we had lived in the day. Because honestly, this is not socially polite language. I mean, if this is the Victorian South right here, you would have been like, oh, I can't believe you said that at the dinner table, right? This is that type of language. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Held captive under the law. This is really interesting because the whole Old Testament paints a portrait of the law's good. God's law is good because God is good. How can we speak of God's laws holding us captive? How can we speak of being imprisoned? Right, and again, back up and remember, the prison in this time, not quite as clean and sanitary and wonderful of a place as it is today. Right? Prison, ancient Near East, very bad. How is it that we can speak of the law holding us captive? And in order to do that, I have to kind of back you up just a little bit and give a context of covenant theology. Right? We read that word in one of our readings a little bit ago in Ephesians. What is the covenant? Well, you remember there are two covenants, right? Covenant is simply a bond and blood sovereignly administered. It's a, a, a holy agreement like a, you know, a super serious document with life and death kind of consequences. And your first one is the one in the, in the garden, in creation, the covenant of works with Adam. Live perfectly, live forever. Sin once, die. It's a very simple arrangement. Right? The Lord gives it. It's very gracious to Adam. It's very kind. It's very merciful. I mean, if you're a perfect man and you're given the option of all you have to do is live perfectly and you live forever, that is a really excellent deal. I mean, he's never sinned. He doesn't have a sin nature. It's unbelievably gracious. However, it does not last. Adam is a bozo, just like me and you and everyone else. And he sins and sins grievously and sins fairly quickly. And in doing so, plunges all of humanity into death and destruction. And so the covenant of works only functions to condemn people. To say, if you live perfectly, you live forever. If you sin once, you're done. And that is condemnation. Because as much as I like to pretend I'm a really good guy, I can assure you I have sinned once today in the last 10 minutes. Okay, 10 seconds. I've sinned once, more than once, right? So have you. We love to pretend like we are these righteous people, but when we actually look at the math, the equation, live perfectly, live forever, sin once and you're done, we run into trouble. And so what happens is that perfect standard of obedience is no longer freedom for the Christian, but it's captivity. It's captivity because instead of saying, well, live perfectly, you live forever, I can't live perfectly. 
I can't keep it. I can't do it. And so every single law, instead of providing freedom and life and joy, every aspect of it condemns me. Have no other gods before me. That's designed to give me freedom to know there's one true God and I'm supposed to worship Him. But guess what? I've broken that one. Well, it gives me a second commandment. Maybe a second commandment I'll do okay with. Don't make a graven image. Well, I haven't done that, actually. I don't. Oh, wait, no, I, I did that one as a kid, didn't I? Explicitly. But as an adult, how often do I worship Him in my own ways, and my own desires? Or use His name incorrectly? Or use His day incorrectly? Or hate my neighbor? Or The whole list becomes... A catastrophic list of failures, doesn't it? And I look at God's law and I say, this isn't simply freedom for me. This is damnation. Every single command damns me further than the last. Well, okay, so that's that covenant of works, and I fall short there. Well, I know, I read my Bible, I understand that that covenant of works happens, but then there's a second covenant called this covenant of grace. I get that. They're both gracious. That one was, this one is. But this one is built upon the fact that I can't actually be perfect. And so we have this covenant of grace where the Lord's going to accomplish my salvation. And it's given in two parts. It's given in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But as I read that Old Testament with all of its laws and its ceremonial obligations and the sacrificial system, I read and realize even more that I can't keep it. I mean, honestly, just pause momentarily. Think about the last time you actually tried to sit down and read through Leviticus. Most of you kind of of smirk because you know that you don't read Leviticus. You know you don't. Like, be honest with yourself. You know you don't. And then when you do, you get about six chapters in and you're like, this is so stinking confusing and pointless that you give up and go to something interesting. Which shows more about the reader than the book, but I'm just saying. (laughs) but as we do it we recognize that it condemns us every single little thing God's holiness knows no bounds and it is not flexible or you read it and it goes through the the difference of the types of hairs that you have growing out of your moles (laughs) Uh I wonder how much I'd be unclean from what I've gone through over the last week with my head crud and strep throat. As you read these, you find out how wonderfully critical the law is. It shows you all of your failings. It shows you all of your weaknesses. It shows you all of your flaws. I remember reading an article, this was a number of years ago, about a woman who had figured out a way to make mirrors so they were just slightly curved. She, so she, very clever lady, just slightly curved, just, I mean, just barely. 
Couldn't even notice that they were. And so she started selling full body length mirrors at women's clothing stores. Because when you looked in the mirror, it made you look like you were about 3% smaller than you actually were. How much money do you think she made? The correct answer is a fortune, right? Because she realized that if she could come up with a way that of a mirror that hid our faults, she'd make a killing. And you see, the law is actually the exact opposite. It's like that funhouse mirror that you walk up to, and it's the other way so that you look like you're this wide, and you see every single failing and every single flaw and every single mistake in your body. It shows all of the, the flaws. And in 24, he takes up here uh, <clears throat> an illustration of this further, and this is where it gets a bit shocking and a bit tough for our conscience. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. That is, my friends, a rotten translation. And the reason being is because this word does not exist in English. The closest thing that we would have in English would be a word that would fit those in here with the greatest of hairs and their experience when their grandparents told them about their childhood with a nanny. And by that, I mean in Deep South, a slave who was explicitly trained with raising the children. That's what this word is. In this context, now again, remember, Roman slavery was not about uh, race or skin tone. It was about nationality, um, what country you came from. But it was a slave who was most likely either older or injured, so they were no longer able to perform their duties. And so they were given the task of raising the children. They were more than a babysitter, but less than a teacher. The best word is probably not guardian. It would be something like a a nanny or disciplinarian. Uh, We we know about it. I mean, all throughout history, we have these well-documented. Alexander the Great absolutely loved his. His was Lysimonius was the name of his his guardian. It's a pedagogue is the actual word. They were famous because their primary form of discipline was to turn the children's ears and drag them wherever they needed to go when they were being disobedient, right? If the kid's being naughty in the market, just grab the ear and yank them home, right? I mean, there's a very well-documented class of person. But part of why this is so shockingly offensive is as this person raised the children, the children functioned as slaves. So as the slave raised the children, the children were associated with slaves. They were children of slavery until they came of age And they were able to graduate from their nanny and to become a part of society. And so Paul is taking up the language of his day and say, look, the law is functioning as our nanny, as our disciplinarian until Christ came. The whole purpose is to show all of our faults. Right? These these nannies were famous for being wonderfully critical. The word actually in parts of Greek history, it's used, Roman history is used synonymously for someone who is hypercritical. And that's what they were trained to do. These were designed to ride the children into obedience. 
to scold them, to point out their failures, and to change them. The law is designed to show us we can never be good enough. Now, the reality of the matter is, is we as Americans have a works righteousness principle built into us. It's part of our DNA that we have this idea that if we work hard enough, anybody will love us. We can earn anyone's respect. We can earn honor. We can earn dignity. We can earn anything if we're willing to put the effort in. And the law's whole purpose is to say, you can't earn this. You can't. No matter how hard you try, you can't. It is as our, our nanny, our, our teacher, our trainer walking alongside of us and saying, failure, 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 failure. You messed there. You're wrong there. Oh, you messed up there. Oh, nope, you're wrong there. Oh, look, you sinned here. Oh, you sinned there. Oh, you sinned there. Constantly berating us. Why? Well, in order that we might be justified by faith. To constantly show how far short we fall. To show how badly we live in order that we might look to Christ. The law is designed to point us to Jesus. Why? Well, second point here to see is because believers find freedom in Jesus. The law points us to Him because the law isn't freedom. Freedom is found only in Christ. This is 25 through 27. But now faith has come. This, this new administration, this new covenant, this new testament where Jesus is at work. Well, faith has come in and we're no longer under this nanny. We're no longer under this guardian. For in Christ Jesus, now you're no longer like slaves. You're the sons of God. And I want to pause and just unpack that phrase. The reality of the matter is, is I cannot emotionally relate to this one easily. I don't know what it's like to grow up with that concept of belonging to someone else as property. To know that if I made them angry enough, they could sell me. They could sell me to a bad master. To know that if I was hungry, I had to ask them for permission for food. I don't know those things. I do know, I've read enough, to know that it shapes your psyche. It shapes your self-identity. It shapes how you think and feel about the world and about others and about yourself. It shapes who you are. And here the Lord Jesus says that you have the privilege of putting away the mindset of being property and taking up the mindset of being a child of the king of creation. Putting away the shame, the lack of dignity, 
the lack of value, the lack of confidence, the insecurity about meaning, insecurity about daily provision, putting all of those away and taking up the mantle of belonging to the King of Kings as his precious and beloved child. He takes it even further in verse 27. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So as you come to know Him, as you're converted and you have the baptism taking place, you're brought into Jesus, you then, the same way that I put my jacket on in the morning, I get dressed. Believers have the privilege of getting dressed in Jesus. So that in this new relationship, we may rest in Him. Identify with Him. Trust in Him. Find peace in Him. Love in Him. Be cleansed of shame in Him. Find value in Him. Be faithful in Him. To be in Jesus. Let's say one of my kids sneaks into my closet, grabs my coat, puts it on. Obviously, it's not going to fit them yet. There'll be a day. But they'll still smell like me, won't they? And particularly if it's Boston, he'll look a little bit like me because we do look a wee bit alike. And you'll have a little bit of a vision, even in that, to say, that child looks a little bit like his father, doesn't he? And that's that privilege that we have in Jesus is to go from these outcasts to looking and smelling and sounding just a little bit more like our Savior in Christ. That's a pretty amazing promise. The believers find freedom in Jesus, but it doesn't stop here. It actually goes further. And here he strikes at the heart of all of the cultural hatred that filled the day. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That right there, my friends, is called a shot across the bow. That right there is about the fastest way to get fired in an ancient Near Eastern church of the day. That is about as offensive of a statement as can be said in this day. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. No kidding. In the ancient church at this point, a third of the people in there would have been free. The other two-thirds or three-quarters would have been slaves. Most of them would have been slaves. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is actually interesting because, again, cultural commentary. uh, There was a, a prayer that Jewish men prayed every morning. This is, again, very well documented. They would go to the Lord in prayer every morning, and they would pray... 
thanking the Lord that they did not, that he did not, sorry, thanking the Lord that the Lord did not make him a Gentile, that the Lord did not make him ignorant, or that the Lord did not make him a woman. Your average Jewish man, I'm serious, every morning, when he went to the Lord in prayer that morning, that was his prayer. Thank you for not making me a pagan Gentile. Thank you for not making me an ignorant fool. And thank you for not making me a woman. That's a little bit shocking right there. I find that just wonderfully evil in so many ways. Their point was to say, we love your law, and we're the only ones who are actually trained in your law. All of those other categories of people don't actually get any training in the law. We're the only ones who know the Bible, so thank you for making me me and not one of them. And it's interesting, what is Paul's categories here in this statement? Notice what he does. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Well, that's the first category. There's neither slave nor free. Well, no, that's the second category. There's neither male nor female. That's the third category. He's undoing their hateful, bigoted, proud prayer that they offer to the Lord every morning to say, the consequence of this redemption in Jesus is that we all get joined together. No longer matters what background we came from. What's our race? Are we a Jewish race or are we Greek? What's our skin color? Are we Jewish in skin color? Are we Greek? It doesn't matter. Not important. What's our economic background? Are we slave or are we free? Are we uh, from a higher income free or are we, you know, from the lowest of the low? Are we slave? Doesn't matter. Not an issue. Are we from the Patriarchy, are we masculine society, the ones who would control the things of the day? Or are we those who would have been much more disenfranchised and less powerful women? Doesn't matter. None of it matters anymore. Because there's one category of person in Jesus. In Jesus, he's redefining the church as all being knit together so that all of these categories that defined our hate and defined our value and defined our anger and defined our shame, all of those categories are gone. And the only category that remains for the church are those that are in Jesus Christ. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you sound like. It doesn't matter how your body is shaped. It does not matter at all. If you are in Jesus, you have salvation. And you are part of the family of God. He undoes, the Lord undoes cultural hatred in one paragraph. Can you imagine being one of the the Jewish men that morning who had had his devotions before coming to worship, worship in the Galatian church and had prayed that prayer? Right? That morning up, Lord, thank you, so pompously, foolishly. Thank you for not making me one of these people. Thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me an ignorant slave. Thank you for not making me a woman. And then get in and then read the letter and worship and find out, oh, I am wrong. Because these distinctions melt away as we're knit together in family. 
Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, why, just a couple of brief applications. This must redefine how we think of self. Our culture wants us to think about self in certain ways, right? Depending on how much gray hair you have or how much hair you have, you were probably raised in different eras. My generation is the first generation to be raised on this self-worth generation, right? We're the first ones to be raised saying you, you have this you know, amazing value to yourself and obviously it has not worked out for our generation at all. Because we, we don't have value in self we have value in God. We have value in Jesus. My generation has picked up shame and embraced it like a filthy blanket and covered ourselves in it constantly. This needs to redefine how we view ourselves, how we view our bodies, how we view our personalities, how we view our interactions with our spouses and our children, how we view our interactions with our neighbors. We are in Jesus and we're His child. We're beloved. We wear the Christ garment. We smell and look and act just a little bit like the Trinity. And that is a good, good thing. It should give us an optimism in dealing with our friends and ourselves, a patience, a hope, and a joy with one another. I'm constantly just baffled reading the Gospels about how much joy Jesus had interacting with his disciples. I mean, has there ever been a group of men who have missed it more than those guys? I mean, years in his presence, and they still don't get that he's the Messiah. And then right when they finally do, he beelines it to Jerusalem, and they all scatter like roaches in the sunlight. They're gone. And he has so much joy in them. You know, if only I had that much joy in myself and joy in others as well as I trusted in the Lord Jesus. But then a second application would be is it is appropriate for us to apply this is to then do these same categories for ourselves. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. To recognize that we are his body, we are his people, and that is our category. Whoever walks through those doors will be ours. Right? Understand that. That's your pastor challenging you now. Whoever walks through those doors, they are ours. Right? We will keep them as much as we are able forever and ever because there are no divisions anymore. No more looks like me, no more sounds like me, no more acts like me. Are we in Christ? Then we are family. That is our challenge. Father in heaven, we thank you for the redemption found in Christ. We thank you for the law which shows our failings. We thank you that we may have forgiveness in Jesus. Give us joy in one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.